best way of life that there is. What he teaches and what he does for us is incomparable. And it's the way of life that goes on for eternity. So we'd love to talk with you about why we're following him and invite you to do it too. This morning, uh, I want to open with a question. Have you ever played this game? You know, the game where you stick the piece of paper to your head, and what do you have, like 20 questions? And you're supposed to ask yes or no questions. You know, this is Marilyn Monroe, and you're supposed to ask, am I alive, you know? And then the other people you're playing with, they're not allowed to lie, right? So if you ask, am I an actor, and your name is Harrison Ford, they're not allowed to go, no, you know, because that would throw you off a little bit, right? And, and what you're, the whole point of the game is to try before the questions are up to get to the point where you can say, I know who I am, I'm Elvis. Although if this guy had to play that game, I don't know what's wrong with him. I mean, look at his hair. That guy is obviously Elvis, you know, with or without the sticker. But that's, it's a fun game, as long as you're playing a game. It's less fun... It's less fun when you're encountering your life and going, now who am I again? Because moments can come that throw that into real question. You ever have a moment of just really profound failure? Where you, you, you thought you were the kind of person that was beyond that. Or a moment when you're really disappointed in somebody and they let you down and, and maybe everything falls apart and you're like, who am I now? You know, I, I thought I knew who I was, but who I was involved this other person, and now, huh, maybe I don't know who I am. Have you ever been there? That can be one of the hardest questions that there is. In some ways, it is the lifelong question, because if you think you got it nailed down, and you, think you, you feel like you finally have an answer to it, things change. There was a time when I thought, you know, I know who I am. I'm a professor, or I will be eventually. I know what I am. I know who I am. That's not who I am. You know, and, and I, I tell you, men particularly are tempted to fall into this, this trap of I am, who, I am what I do. What do you do when you retire then? When I quit doing all these things that define me, what do I do then? We're tempted to find ourselves in some sort of relationship or another. What do you do when that goes sideways? Who are you? I see a lot of people nodding, and i got to tell you, I'm taking a lot of comfort in that. To know that it's not just me. I'm not alone in the wrestling with who am I. I'm not going to read it to you because it would take up too much of my time, but there's a wonderful poem. If you just go online, it's the the second link that Google gives you. poem by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's a man in prison when he writes it. And uh, and he says over and over again, Who am I? Who am I? Am I this person? They tell me that I'm going to walk right out of here someday. Is that who I am? Am I going to be master of my commandant? Master of my... Who am I? Because I hear all these voices talking to me, but I look inside my own life and I see all this turmoil and trouble and pain and confusion and mess. Am I what they say? Am I what I experience? Who am I really? 
the end of the poem is, Whomever I am, Thou knowest, O God, I am Yours. I don't think there is any other answer to that question. It's one of the big reasons I come here again and again and again. I come back to this place. Because I need Him to tell me who I am. I'm tempted to think I am my success or my failure. I'm tempted to think that I am my achievement or my lack of it. I think, I'm tempted to think that I am my creativity or my blandness. I tend to think that I am my ability to love or my ability to succeed or whatever. I tend to think that I am something that I can define and that I can create and that I can generate. And the truth is, I am what I find here. Beloved of God, invited to come and commune. This morning we're looking at the, uh, the second half of a story. Last week we looked at uh, the road to Emmaus, the journey part of that. And we pick up our story this morning, uh, halfway through, so it's uh, kind of like one of those TV shows that you watched back in the 80s when you couldn't stream them on Netflix and just go to the next one. You had to wait an entire week before you got to find out who shot JR or whatever. This is the second half of the story where we pick up with the one who can tell us who we are. And he tells us who we are by letting us find out who he is. So, the story begins on the road, and it began last week. You'll have to go on YouTube if you missed it. Anyway, so they drew near to the village where they were going. These two people who were walking away from Jerusalem. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, the journey is into Jerusalem, and here they are walking away, defeated, broken, sad, and walking together with the resurrected, murdered Lord. Murdered, but now alive. Killed, but now with them. Walking with them and asking silly questions like, what are you talking about? Really? What things? Tell me more. And then he unpacks to them the Scriptures to tell them, don't you understand? God is not defeated. This was always God's triumphant plan. And so they've drawn near to the village. The, 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 the journey is done. And they can't hear anymore, but when they get there, he acted like he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. Stay with us. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Have you ever had to say that? When you're wrestling with that who am I thing, one of the most profound things I can say when I'm stuck in mystery and I'm uncertain of my foundations, when I don't know where I stand and I don't know what's going on, when I feel like I had figured things out and suddenly my path takes a sudden jog to the left that I did not know was coming. Okay, well stay with me though. I can't make this journey without you. And it's a journey in tonight. And I don't know where I'm going. So one of the most gospel things that you hear in this passage is, so he went to stay with them. And they really wanted him. They didn't even know who he was yet. But they've gotten to the point where they're like, come on, please, don't, don't let this end. You know, because we are, we are broken, we are sad, we are weary from the way. Please, come in. Stay with us. That's what He does, isn't it? 
When your heart can't take another step, when you're weary and you're not sure, and you cry out to Him, please come with me, He does. Church, He doesn't leave you alone. No matter what you're feeling, no matter the confusion, the pain, the trouble, He is with you. Cry out to Him. Stay with us. It's toward evening. The day is far spent. Come with me, please. And when He goes in with them, He does the most amazing thing. Who's the host here? In this house, who's in charge of table? Well, they are, aren't they? You ever have somebody come over to your house? What do you do? You know, they come over to your house to eat. You cook. You serve it. You put it in front of them. But look at this. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. A little bit of an upstart, isn't he? And suddenly he's acting as though he's the host. Because he is, really. This whole cosmos is his house. We're all visitors here. We're all guests waiting to be adopted, waiting to be welcomed. He's the host. I want to point out to you something that's really pretty cool. The wording isn't precisely the same. There's a different word for blessed back in chapter 22. Uh, In in chapter 22, it's in a different tense, and it's a different word. Uh, In in chapter 22, it's, it's when he had given thanks. And the early church recognized what he's doing here is something called the Eucharist. Eucharist, it's another word for that thing. Lord's Supper. Communion. The reason it's called Eucharist is because of the word used for the blessing that Christ placed upon it. He gave thanks. And it leads us to give thanks. But with the exception of the word for the kind of prayer that He did, it's precisely the same words. He took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. Took, blessed, broke, gave. Do you think that's accidental? Or do you think maybe Jesus is doing that on purpose? He is is violating the social norm, the expectation of host. He's suddenly taking on host for himself. And then he's going through this behavior that there's good reason to think that these guys had only hadn't experienced it yet. Remember the Eucharist, Eucharist, who was there? The twelve were there. These are not the twelve. They go later and find the eleven survivors of the twelve. I don't know whether they were there or not, because there may have been other people at that meal. But somehow still, when he does this, their eyes are open. It is in Eucharist, in Lord's Supper, in communion, that we see Jesus. Now listen to this. They were walking along the road with them. You know, not, not very long ago, I went on a camping trip with, with Isaac, and, uh, or with Silas. I let Silas get out of my sight a couple of times because he's off playing with friends, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to one of the other parents that's on the camping trip with me. 
But, Ed, you know, I'm, I'm not a terrible parent. I mean, he was always right there, okay, you know. But every once in a while, what do you do when you're in that so you, you talk, you fellowship with the person you're with, right? But then you, you lift up your eyes and you look around, right? I don't need to see his clothes to see him. Right? The moment I, I see, I can recognize him from any angle. It's true of all my kids. It's true of my wife. You know, they can be 100 yards away from me. There he is. That one's mine. I don't even know how you do that. You know, but, but when someone is beloved to you, the shape of their head, the way that they hold themselves and carry themselves. Last night I went to pick up Isaac. At a, and he had a bonfire with some friends. And I went to pick him up after dark. It's dark. You could not see well. And I looked around in the darkness. And I'm like, that's my son. That shape right there that I can't see. That one's my boy. Out of all these kids, that one's mine. Why? Because I love him. Because he's precious to me, made an imprint on me. Do you think that I could walk along a road and not recognize him? Could I walk with him talking to me and not recognize him? And don't you think that I'd probably be able to recognize his voice, for goodness sakes? And then if he started saying stuff that was distinctively him, recognizably Isaac, or recognizably Silas or Jillian or Ashley or something, someone that I loved and cherished, when they start talking and going through their typical shtick, I'd be like, oh, I know who this is. But I want you to notice, they didn't recognize him. Not from his voice and cadence and his resurrected presence. Not from his teaching. Even once he begins unpacking the Scriptures and making it clear, this is what has to happen to the Christ. They still don't get it. They invite him in with them. They don't know who they've got. They don't know who they're with. But he breaks bread. He takes bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it. And suddenly, their eyes are opened. I think he did that, though. It's not they opened their eyes. Their eyes are opened. They suddenly can recognize him. He wanted it to wait until he did this. Until he led them to table. Because he's saying to them, you need to find me here. In the breaking of bread. It's an interesting reality that what is it that first messed up our vision? That first polluted our eyesight? Do you remember? It was eating. Genesis 3, they ate and their eyes were opened. You know, it's it's the same phrase. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized that they were naked. And what did they do? They said, I'm naked and that's a bad thing. It's bad. I'm bad. Everything's bad. Good grief, the Lord God is bad. I need to run away from Him. It is eating that polluted their vision. It's eating that gave them clarity again. And when the first, when our ancient parents ate, what did they see? They saw themselves. The foundation of their seeing was to look at themselves and to, because they had become their own source, their own God, their own knowledge of good and evil, and they had established their own good life now. They were messed up. He opens their eyes, and what do they see? They see him. Their vision has been entirely corrected. The curse lifted. The damage undone. 
They can see again. So that's what this does for us. And it's fascinating that after it's done, He vanishes from their sight. Why? I think to prepare us for the reality that you're not going to see Him, but you're going to see Him. Over and over and over again, you're going to see Him. When you come here, you're going to remember again, why is His blood in cups? Why is His body popping all around me? Why these snapping sounds? Why is He broken? Why is it? Well, because He chose love over life. He chose me over Himself. And when I see Him in that, I can see myself. I can see you. I can see how much I should cherish and love you because He does. And I can see myself as I am, beloved and worth so great a price. It is here that I see Him for who He is. It is here that I see you. It is here that I see myself because it is here that our eyes are opened. And though we see Him not, we see Him still. When we come to communion, we come here to be with Jesus. We cry out to Him, come stay with Me. It's it's hard where I am. The day is over. It's getting dark. Come be with Me. And He says, come be with Me. Come remember who you really are. Come remember who I am. Come remember what my life is about. Come remember what my dying meant. And how it teaches you. What priorities have I set if I die like this? What kind of people ought you to be? Come be marked by this again. Come be with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to communion, we come to fellowship with each other. That may sound strange the way that we do this because it's a time of contemplation. I think the early church would probably look at what we do. You realize the early church, they didn't own pews. They didn't have them. they They also didn't own these. So when this was done for the first 320 or so years, it was done in living rooms. It wasn't until Constantine that anybody had a pew. You know, it wasn't until Constantine that you had naves and you had, you know, the, the, the big buildings that he built all over the place. Prior to that, everyone sat in a living room. Do you think that they sat in silence when they ate? I doubt it. I bet they were talking to each other. Talking to each other about what He means. Talking to each other about what He's done. Talking to each other to encourage one another to take the cross seriously. Now folks, we don't have to do that here. I'm not saying, hey, I mean, I'd, personally, I would love to have the Lord's Supper be interactive. That would be great. But we have to do that. And it's the Supper that tells us so. Because when you eat together with another person, you let down your guard. You become vulnerable and, and open to each other. And folks, we need the fellowship. The table says so. The first tables were not symbolic. They were the real thing where people ate together and communed and talked about the Lord God. The story from the walk along the way was the story of the table. And they talked to each other about what it meant and how they were doing with it and how they could encourage one another. And so as they ate the Lord, they took the Lord on and they talked to one another about the Lord. But per my intro, perhaps... One of the most wonderful things that this does for us is that we come to communion to know ourselves. Because when we see Him, 
all the rest of the things by which we define ourselves fades away in His light. He outshines the significance of any of it. We, each of us and all of us, know who we really are together and, and apart and as individuals and as a group because we look at Him, not ourselves. Look, if I've got to sustain some sort of identity so that God will love me, I'm in real trouble. I have sin. I have shame. I have pain. I am weak. I become angry and disturbed too easily. Depression swirls around in me, and if I'll let it, it'll define me. It can. But not here. Not here. Here I come face to face with the One who tells me who I am. And I am not my sins. And I am not my successes. I am not my lostness. I have been found. By the One who I invited in. Not knowing who He was or what He would do. And He has restored my sight. He restored theirs. Look at what He did to them. They, They sit there in awe of it. Amazed by what just happened. Maybe partly because he just got beamed up. You know, I mean, that vanishing would probably set you back on your heels a little bit. But you'll note, they don't talk about that. No, no. What they talk about is the journey. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened the Scriptures to us? Let that hit you for a minute. The awe of this was not that a guy just vanished. The thing that they were burning with was the wonder of who God is and what that means about who I am now. The wonder of this new understanding of God and my preciousness to Him. The wonder of what God has done. The resurrected Lord is alive. He can't be conquered. And if I am His, then neither can I. (laughs) That's a bigger deal than a dude disappearing even. This, their, their hearts are on fire. This is what the table is meant to do to us. To remind you of your real story and your real place in it and who we really are. We are beloved of God. He died for us. He was raised for us. He is our King over us. And He's leading us in victory. This is the story of the Bible. Is it not a thing to burn over? And then notice what they do next. They arose that same hour, and where did they go? Where was the journey throughout the book? Where were they going? They're back on the road. They're back on discipleship again. They're headed back into Jerusalem. Back to the dangerous place. You realize what danger they're taking on here? What kind of threat they're facing? They are allies of the murdered man. That the system killed. And they're headed back to the seat of power of that system. It doesn't matter anymore. None of that matters because He's with us. And they went and they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together and saying, the Lord has indeed risen. Or rather, the Lord is risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. Which, to be honest with you, I have no idea what that means. Simon is Peter. And Peter, last, last we saw Peter, he was looking in the tomb. Peter is not either of these two dudes because they went and found the eleven. 
I'm sure there's some kind of hidden meaning in that. If you know what that means, please come see me afterwards. But the significant thing is not the second half of the sentence. The significant thing is that the Lord is risen indeed. And when we gather at table, we gather not at a wake of a funeral, but at a triumphant celebration with the resurrected Lord present with us. And here our eyes are open and He appears to us as we eat. As we take Him on. As He takes us for Himself. And then they told what had happened on the road. They told about the the wonder of how, how Christ reinterprets everything. You thought the story was this. It was a sad one, wasn't it? A bad, hard story filled with setback and depression. You thought your definition of who you are was this, filled with sin and shame and embarrassment. And here come the Lord interpreting something else, showing you a completely different read, casting a whole other light on it, changing everything about how you understand who you are. That's the walk along the road and how He, had, how he was known to them. How He was known to them in the breaking of bread. That we settle here at the table to break bread together so that we might come to know a love like that. A dedication like that. A faith like that. A trust in God like that. A trust that would say, okay, they may kill me and yet I will trust you. They may be evil. You are good. I will trust you. Let them drive the nails home. A man like that. At the table. That I might become a man like that. What a wondrous hope. Huh? You and I are invited to come and know Him. And come and know the answer. Who am I? You are Christ's. Let's take the supper together.